Welcome to Barnyard Language. We are Katie and Arlene, an Iowa sheep farmer and an Ontario dairy farmer with six kids, two husbands, and a whole lot of chaos between us. So kick off your boots, reheat your coffee, and join us for some Barnyard Language, honest talk about running farms and raising families. In case your kids haven't already learned all the swears from being in the barn, it might be a good idea to put on some headphones or turn down the volume. While many of our guests are professionals, they aren't your professionals. If you need personalized advice, consult your people. Welcome to another episode of Barnyard Language. You're here with Katie and I, as usual. And um, Katie, I see via the social media that there are some lambs that you need to talk about. What's happening on the farm in Iowa? I'll tell you, Arlene, this combination of a full moon and a apparently huge snowstorm blowing in, uh, you know, net 10 to 15 inches of snow at some point in the next three days kind of thing. And um, being super busy with work means lambs are just flying out everywhere. I mean, not like literally, uh, they kind <laughs> yeah. of are. That, um, yeah, that'd be slightly tr- problematic, but yeah, they're, they're dropping yeah, to the ground yeah. anyway. Yes, yes. And we have one ewe who's um, approximately 938 years old in sheep years, and Mm -hmm. she should not have, she was not expected to breed this year, which she apparently did not get the memo on, so she had a very nice set of twins, who I am now bottle feeding every four hours around the clock. Right. um, Because she has no milk at all. Because yeah. she's literally, I mean, she's old enough that she's, like, losing patches of hair and doesn't have any teeth. And, you know, it, on the day that she seems at all unhappy, we'll deal with it. Right. But until then, I mean, she seems perfectly pleased with herself. What's what's the term in so. humans? So geriatric pre- pregnancy? Is that the... Uh, yes. She was... <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yes. She was, she's geriatric. Uh, except that she's, like, actually geriatric. Yeah. We're approaching, like... <laughs> yeah. Was that the Bible story about, was it Rachel that had her first child at like 900 years old or something? Yeah. Like, yeah, she's, that's she's basically approaching where that. we're at with this sheep. Yeah. Yeah. She's like, what yeah. are these but lambs she throws and why? beautiful lambs. She just um, can't feed them. Yeah. So, so, of course, she'd have to. I did find out, though, that the boy child has named one of them Lil Fella. Mm-hmm. My my little four-year-old son came up to me today to ask how his little fellow is doing, and I just about died. Um, <laughs> that is a delightful so name. So fucking cute. So cute. Uh, other than that, not much. We have a new uh, freezer meal business opening in the area, which is like our big excitement for the week. You know, that is exciting. Anytime we don't have to cook, I'm I'm big on that. So, uh, what's happening in Ontario? In the whole whole province. You have yeah, the, en- for the entire province um, still appears to be winter. So yeah, that's that's happening. We are entering 4-H season around here, so that makes things uh, a little busier. So currently, we've got two kids doing a 4-H photography club, and I'm not really leading, but attending meetings to be an extra screened body for supervision so some of those meetings have been happening in our barn so last night there were lots of youths around taking pictures of cows and barn cats and whatever else they thought looked photogenic around the place so that was pretty cute um and other than that we're heading into march break so the uh family's actually going on a little vacation so i will tell everybody about it after we get back i think but 
suffice it to say, this is our last holiday as a family of six on March break. I'm not going to say that we'll never have a family of holidays as a family of six, but my daughter's going away to university in the fall and my kids' breaks might not line up anymore because they have a reading week in February, whereas our elementary and high school spring break is in March, so that will make things a little bit more complicated. So we're actually going to go away for a few days and spend some time together and uh, fingers crossed all of the amazing people who are scheduled to uh, work here on the farm. That's all going to work out perfectly, I'm sure. And yeah, so that's the, anyone who has livestock knows that there's a lot of planning that goes into leaving. So hence the, uh, the crossing of fingers and toes and hoping that every, everything goes okay while, while we're away. But we, we have lots of trust in the people who are here and we hope for their sake that nothing unexpected goes on. I saw a reference to Reading Week um, somewhere online this morning and realized that it's it's not a term we use in the States, but I did get a mental image of basically my most perfect vacation ever, besides obviously visiting you and your family. But Yes, a Reading you know, Week sounds delightful right just, now. Right? Like, teapot, stack of books. Yeah, maybe, maybe a heated blanket, fireplace. Up after. Yes. <laughs> yes. Right? And, oh, perfection. Yeah, that's, uh, yeah, that would be a great vacation at this stage of life. Maybe not what university students have in mind, but uh, definitely what us uh, mid-40s uh, moms <laughs> probably would love more than just about anything. Some friends and I have been discussing renting an apartment in town. It would not be for living in. It would just be like a, a timeshare situation, and it would just be decorated entirely in white and have, you know, perhaps a very well-behaved Siamese cat that would just sit on the on the furniture with you and you could just go for an hour or two and enjoy the silence. And That would be amazing. So instead of like a, you know, they have co-working spaces that would, it would be like a co-relaxing space so you could schedule your time yes. whether you wanted to see another human or not. You could uh, register and Precise. either see other people or make sure that you don't. It would be amazing. I think Sounds this should perfect. be the next big thing. Really. Yeah, yeah, you should definitely yeah. market that. It's kind of like an Airbnb, but you don't have to stay that long. Just, like, schedule a time and go read a book. Yeah, I think you've come up nice. with the next the next new big thing, for sure. Oh, also, Jim wanted to know if you guys were coming to Dairy Expo this year because he thought maybe we could plan a romantic uh, couples excursion. <laughs> To dairy what part Expo. of Dairy Expo is romantic? <laughs> I'm sure our husbands could plan something. Uh, the part where we don't have kids or cows with us? Yeah, that's true. I think. Well, it's our uh, 20th anniversary this year, so Expo has definitely been pitched as, as a potential uh, location for that. So, I mean, <laughs> sounds like my husband's on board. He really does bring romance, doesn't he? <laughs> yeah, that's right. Mm. We'll, uh, we'll stay tuned on that one. Sounds good. All right. Let's uh, see who we have up for our interview this week. Today, we are talking to Takia Maget, who is joining us from Edisto Island, South Carolina. So, Kia, we start each of our interviews with the same question, and this is a way to introduce yourself to our listeners. So for our farmers, that covers crops and livestock, but it can also cover families, businesses, your career, and all kinds of other stuff. So, Kia, what are you growing? 
Oh, wow. Um, I like that I had the other portion of like not growing veggies because I am growing veggies, but I'm also growing myself, you know, um, being in this new place. I'm originally from New Jersey. So um, let's start with my garden. I am growing cool weather crops. So tons of brassicas and uh, greens because we love our collard greens here in cabbage um, from my relatives next door. And I am growing some snow peas, and uh, I think that's it. I think I have some carrots in the ground too. It's, it's actually I'm, because I'm so far now. I've moved from Edisto Island, and I'm an hour away. I'm not as close anymore, so I'm kind of like figuring out what I want to grow. Um, but right now, just kinds of leafy greens. But just also myself, I have been just growing in uh, this new lifestyle and growing in my motherhood journey. Uh, I am a single parent, and so it's been very interesting. <laughs> um, just figuring out um, who I am again, you know, after having a kid. And so, yeah, that's kind of what I'm growing right now. Yeah. And are you growing that right now we're recording in December? Are you able to grow all those things currently? Because we're, yeah. we're in cold places. So even the idea that you can <laughs> grow yeah, stuff right now. A, it's a really great, well, you know, it's, it's kind of pro and cons. Like we can grow all year here, but the summers are like really brutal. Uh, the bugs are a mess. <laughs> so I really look forward to the cool weather season here uh, because it's really mild. Uh, so yeah, all year round, like 12 months, 10 to 12 months out of the year. We'll have a few frost days, but... They're, they're bootleg. I call them bootleg frost days. They're not really legit. Yeah, <laughs> like, so a, a few a few plants strategically, or a few blankets strategically placed can kind of... Not uh, even. I don't <laughs> no, even you don't even need to. Just like cross my fingers and hope for my, the best. And I just like Mother Nature, please don't do me like that. And she doesn't typically, so yeah. I just kind of roll with it. You know, growing with the earth and just growing with nature and with the seasons, it comes... If it's going to be something like brutal, I, I have something I know is going to get, you know, beat up by the frost. I'll just go out and harvest it and get it out the way. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So what are you growing vegetable wise the rest of the year? Oh, man, I am. Uh, well, I can tell you right now, it's been such a learning curve coming from the northeast and then moving down to the southeast and trying to figure out how to grow shit out here. It's been a lot. But I found a local organization um, that actually has like a whole list she has plant sales so i started following her and i was like i don't necessarily have to buy her plants i did though but it was helpful so i can know what to put in the ground and what to start you know putting you know transplanting myself or starting in a greenhouse myself um and when i say greenhouse i mean like the rickety is like piece of thing in my garden it works <laughs> um but it's not like like you know super cool high tunnel or anything like that um but during the rest of the season, uh, okra, tomatoes, which have been a little bit challenging, but I'm getting better um, down here. Tons of uh, peppers. We love our peppers here. I do, at least. And what else do I grow? So many. Um... Oh, I forgot to mention my root veggies. I'm growing like rutabaga and daikon radish and watermelon radish. I think what's really cool down here because I can grow all year round. I don't have any specific veggies that I like. I always just like, you know, try different things because I do have the opportunity or the option to grow all year here. So I never really set, you know, to one thing um, or a few different veggies. I kind of like try different things. Uh, tons of flowers in the springtime. Well, late, early spring and they'll bloom in the summer. Um, so like sunflowers and snapdragon. 
I do love growing um, chamomile, so, you know, flowers and herbs for teas. I typically grow, um, yeah. And I do love that, like my herbs, like thyme and parsley. I mean, I have, those things go almost the entire year, except for like the hot summer. Once it gets like really, really hot, they'll start withering away. But for the most time, like I have herbs all year round, which is pretty awesome. Um, yeah. Onions, garlic, <laughs> that's in the ground now too. Cause you know, those take like six months yeah. to grow, but I have some of those in the ground. Um, what else have I going on? Oh, this is a hard question. I'll, I never think about what I'm growing because I just like grab a bunch of seeds and I'm like, ooh, that looks cool. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sure that's going to work She's one of out. us, Arlene. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Toss some more yeah, stuff in I don't have like there. a planner. I don't, you know, I don't follow anything. I have a log book. I just do things. And yeah. <laughs> I don't like just that's, work with nature. <laughs> yeah, that's great. Yeah. Um, how old is your child? He is four years old. Oh. Yeah. Katie's got a, a four-year-old too, so uh, yeah. <laughs> she's in he's the same. Five place. in July, and he's asking for all these things, and I always say, "When you turn five, and I'm just like, "Oh man, what am I going to say when he turns five? <laughs> he wants a dog and all these things." And I'm always like, "Yeah, when you turn five, yeah, put push that off. <laughs> he's going to have a whole list." Uh, so today's the day. <laughs> I remembered. <laughs> so, Kia, you said you moved from. New Jersey to South Carolina. Um, how? Why? I, I always feel bad <laughs> when I say why. Like, question. what the hell were you thinking? But, I mean, um, seems like kind yeah, of a random... Yeah, no, it's, that's a totally valid question. Maybe it wasn't, um, you know. So, I had no plans of moving to South Carolina. I was actually in North Carolina for one year. I was in Greensboro, North Carolina. Um, and I... So, what happened was I, I moved with some relatives... <laughs> And we moved to Charlotte, North Carolina. And uh, in 45 days, it went haywire. And I was like, I got a piece out. And I did. It was a lot that came up, just like family stuff. And I realized like that wasn't for me. And so I moved on. Um, it was one of the toughest decisions I've ever had to make um, and then go on my own. My son was like 18 months at the time. And so I moved to uh, Greensboro. And I was there for about a year. And uh, I want to say April of 2020, I had lost my job because it was the height of COVID and I got laid off. And I was like, holy shit, I won't be able to afford this rent anymore. And also, I was kind of like wanting to get out of this apartment building and, and get on some land. I wanted to grow food uh, back in New Jersey, New Jersey City. I like volunteered at the community gardens, found my way in any way to grow food while I was living in the city. But I really was yearning for like land some land just something bigger and just more accessible considering i had a baby and so um i just i didn't know what i was going to do honestly and i didn't panic or anything about you know about what was going on especially with my career uh and and just <laughs> full disclosure um my grandfather visited me i had a visitation by my grandfather who is deceased um he visited me in a dream because um, I, I really was just asking open-ended questions like, what next? Like, what am I supposed to do? And I had no answers. But one thing I didn't do was just, I didn't like throw in a towel or anything. Um, I wasn't anxious. Um, I really, I was just thinking about like, what, what's next? Like, what do I need to be doing? What, you know, where am I going? And just asking the universe for guidance and instruction and just really being open to it. 
and something I had never, you know, kind of like been before. And so my grandfather visited me uh, in a dream and he told me to call Martha. And the only Martha that I knew was his youngest sibling, his youngest sister. Her name was Martha. I never met her before. She lived in Miami and she was the only one alive out of all of his siblings. And that was the only message he gave me, call Martha. So I got her number and I called her. Never spoke to her a day in my life. And we were on this phone call as if as we'd known each other forever. Um, there was just like this immediate connection, just like familial, you know, connection. And she just was like, call, what did she say to me? Um, I kept asking her, like, you know, my grandfather, you know, I, don't, I don't know if she believed me or not. She was like, my grandfather visited me. Like, your brother came to me in, in a dream and told me to call you. I don't know why. I was like, I know he passed away on my 14th birthday. You know, um, he lived most of his life in, in Charleston after my grandmother died when I was two. So I didn't really grow up with my granddad that much. And he only came back home when he was really sick. And then he passed away on my birthday. And uh, she was just like, go to Edisto. <laughs> and I was like, what are you talking about? I knew that, you know, he was born and raised here and he came up here in the 60s during the second great migration when a lot of black folks was leaving the South for the North for jobs to um, escape terror terror and all of that stuff. So I didn't know much, though. I knew I had Gullah Geechee heritage, but, you know, living in the city, I really wasn't thinking about that. Um, and so I, I was like, go to go to Edisto. Who's on Edisto? And she was like... Martha is on Edisto. And I'm like, wait a second, you're Martha. Like, what are you talking about? And she's like, we have a niece and her name is Martha too. And so I got this Martha's phone number and I called her and I just was like, Hey, Martha, you are my second cousin. Your aunt Martha told me to call you. And I told her that my grandfather, you know, I told her the same thing that I told the other Martha that he came to me in a dream. And then I was like, um, can I come visit? And she was just, I told her I was Thorne's granddaughter. That's my grandfather's name, Thorne. And that's all she needed to know, to know that we were actually related. And she was so excited and ecstatic. And she's just like, come on, come on. I have an empty trailer next door. No one's there. My daughter just moved out with her family into a new home. It's been empty for a year. Come visit. Now, I had just lost my job. And I'm thinking about moving to other places like Asheville, North Carolina. Um, you know, just rural places in North Carolina that's relatively close to some things, still has a pretty diverse population of people. And so I chose Asheville. And I was going to go there to try to, you know, case the joint. And then I wind up going to Edisto instead. Um, this was August now of 2020. And so I went down there. I was supposed to stay for two weeks. It turned into almost a month. And I just was like, yeah. This is where I'm supposed to be. It just was this immediate connection to the land here. Um, just having some having relatives here. So I wasn't by myself anymore as I was in, in Greensboro. Um, and I was just like, oh, my God, I've been asking for land. I've been asking to be closer to some relatives and just like, boom, it happened. And so that's how I got to Edisto. And I've been here for two years. Uh, last month, made two years. That's really cool. And I it's probably good that he wasn't more specific about which Martha you were supposed to call. Because, you know, maybe it would have just been awkward if you called your cousin right. first. Right. And so. it probably would have. <laughs> and unfortunately, my Aunt Martha, she actually passed away this year. Um, and so I'm just really grateful that I listened to the call um, and I didn't ignore it um, because I would have just missed my opportunity. And I tell you, it was literally coming down here being and, and just... Coming down here, 
has allowed me to just heal in ways that I didn't even know I needed to heal. Um, from just inter intergenerational family trauma, my own childhood trauma, um, just the traumatic experiences I've had growing and living in a um, metropolitan, you know, city. Um, yeah, it's it's the best decision I could have ever made. And I'm just so grateful that I, I listened. What is a disto like in terms of like how many people live there? Are there communities or is it all rural? Like what is... Can you describe that place to us and how that 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 place fits you? Oh yeah, it's um, uh, wow. Edisto Island is <laughs> it's like it's like a uh, rural, but it's different. It's it's the vibe is different here. The energy is different here. Like I'm, I'm, it's an actual island. You have to take this really big bridge to get over, and it's just. Um, it's rural. <laughs> Let's just say that. But it's a different type of rural because I, you know, I visited North Carolina with my dad's side of the family. And, you know, I would go down there every summer and that was rural too. But this one was just different. And I think it's because of the water. Um, yeah. And that's what just makes it really, really different. The water here, the energy here, the power. Here, it's just really, I can't even explain it. You kind of have to just be here <laughs> to see it and feel it for yourself. Mm -hmm. um, but it's definitely rural. Houses are um, their their community. So, just some backstory on Edisto Island. Uh, this island is actually separated by um, there's two counties on this one island. So back in the like 60s, 70s, a lot of white families came here uh, because it's beautiful. You know, um, it's really beautiful here. They would come here and retire. There's a lot of folks on the beach, and they actually took the island and kind of like made it two. And so half of the island is in Charleston County and then the other half is in Collington County. And so we have Edisto Beach, which is in Collington County. The racial makeup, the whole demographics is, is different. It's like 95% uh, white, whereas Edisto Island is like 75% black. Um, and so that's the difference here. And so the communities on Edisto Island, and there's still white people here too on the island as well, and they are more immersed in the community here. Uh, it's, it's a really, really tight-knit community. Um, everyone looks out for each other. If you are hungry, you can go to anyone's house and get food. No one ever turns you away. Um, the population now is it's like 65 and up. Um, I think the average population on Edisto Beach, the age is like 65, and on Edisto, I think it's 38. Um, however, there's definitely a lot of older folks, but unfortunately, a lot of them are passing away too. They they're much older, and um, but there are the communities here on the island. They're like pockets of homes, you know. And then there's like a few miles down the road, there's another pocket of like four or five homes situated near each other, and so that's kind of how it's uh, how we're dispersed on on the island. And then you have the beach. Um, which is not really the community is not really a community um, because a lot of folks come there to, you know, vacation. And so they're not like long term, you know, residents for the most part. Um, and this just, you know, you just visualize a beach town. It's just like that, you know, beach homes lined up across along the, um, the shoreline. It's a little disheartening <laughs> when I'm on the beach because I just sometimes imagine, you know, um, just the community that was here prior to mm -hmm. it being kind of separated into two, two places and like one place being for one type of people. And then the other side being for another, it's just, I don't, I don't necessarily care for that. <laughs> I wish we can just all be together. You know? Yeah. 
when it comes to resources for the people who do live there all year round, um, do you have to travel for things like medical care or even groceries, school, those types of things? Or are there enough services on the islands that you can be kind of self-contained? Um, I would, well, I, I live right across, well, not currently, but I was living here. My family is still here right across from the EMT. So we do have like an emergency services across the road here, but there's no hospital. The closest hospital would be in like West Ashley, Charleston, which is like South Charleston area. Um, we do have like a small library. There's like, you know, the, the store here is like the gas station sure. um, store. Um, there is one food line supermarket, but it's on the beach. It doesn't necessarily cater to the people that live here. They're mostly for like tourists. Um, like my family, they go to like the next town over, which is a 20 minute drive to go food shopping. Sure. Um, however, there are like markets and a lot of people still grow their own food too. Not as much, but there are folks in the community that still have like small homesteads. Um, and they typically grow like their staples. Like right now there'll be tons of collard greens in the ground and then and cabbage and then come the summertime, okra kind of like takes over. Everyone eats okra here. It is like the staple food on the island and just in Gullah culture in general. Mm-hmm. I'm going to admit that as a Canadian, I'd never actually heard of the Gullah culture or, or people. Can you tell our listeners a bit about the traditions and culture of of the, your ancestors? So the Gullah Geechee people, um, they are the descendants of, the kidnapped Africans that were living in like Western Africa, but mostly like I would say, namely Sierra Leone, Togo, Benin. And one of the reasons why uh, they were brought from those coastal areas in Africa was because the coast here kind of like is similar and in and, and, like growing conditions. And so they were brought here to grow rice, uh, rice, sea island cotton, and indigo were like the staple crops that were grown here by the people. Um, we are, are, there's like a national, what is it called? It's with the National Park Service, like the Gullah Geechee Heritage Cor- Corridor. And so we're the only like national, like historic um, or heritage like landmark um, that the subject are people. So, you know, when you go places, you typically like, you know, artifacts, you know, old homes and stuff, but like we are the subject, the actual people. And what makes us really different and unique is that because we were isolated on these islands here, we were able to hold on to all of our, um, many of our African traditions, language, there's a, the language is, is Gullah, and that language is like a Creole, and it's the only, like we're the only people that speak that language uh, in the world. It's very similar to Creole, which is spoken in Sierra Leone, so there's some similarities there. Um, but yeah, we, we were able to hold on to much of our African traditions, language, spirituality, food, arts and crafts. So Gullah Geechee people are also known for their, um, uh, the, uh, their uh, baskets. Um, why am I having a, a brain fart right now? But they, I'm trying to think of the actual name. I'm like, I'm freezing, that's why. But they are known for their arts and crafts. So their um, their baskets here, they do lots of weaving. It's not as uh, prevalent. You know, there's a few women who still do it and they're teaching their daughters how to do it. But many of us, because many of us have left the islands, you know, once folks become of age, because we're still so isolated from things, like I said, the grocery store is 20 minutes away. So you can imagine like jobs, 
um, they're even farther. And so a lot of folks, when they become of age, they leave. So a lot of that history and those traditions are kind of like, you know, leaving the island um, and are not as pra practiced as much. But we are um, a very special group of people, I, I want to say, um, in the sense of like the folks who are here, they still do try to hold on to their, their traditions and cultures. We are uh, marine time, you know, like folks. We, a lot of the food base here, um, it's all local. We eat right from the waters here. So oyster, um, tons of fish and crab, shrimp, all of that stuff is consumed heavily on these islands here. Um, and they come right from these waters, which is pretty awesome. Um, but yeah, I would say that's, that's about it around, around about Gullah Geechee folks. Uh, I'm sure there's more. <laughs> yeah. And have you come been, out as we continue, but yeah. Have you been trying to pick up the language? Um, or is know, it something that you ever heard as a child, even in, you know, I know your family had, had left, but you know, would anyone, are there any words or phrases that you kind of already knew before you came back or is it something no, that's very nothing. regional yeah yeah, yeah I, I didn't know any 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 of the words um surprisingly though when I came here and I would hear it I understood it yeah perfectly fine yeah like I remember going down the road to King's Market which is a market just down the road here and they sell like you know local stuff you know um and they their veg, veg, uh, vegetables and stuff but they also have a woman there that does uh sells her baskets and I remember telling her, like, yeah, my grandmother's from here. And she knew my great-grandmother. And she was like, she just started talking to me in Gullah. <laughs> and I was, at first, I was kind of, like, taken back. Because I was like, does she know that I don't know what she's talking about? But then I did. Yeah. <laughs> I just needed a moment for it to just kind of, like, you know, I had to sit with it for a minute. Because um, it, it's so fast. Uh, but after a while, I was like, I get what she's saying. Even if I don't know how to repeat it back to her, I understood every word she said to me. Wow, that's so cool. Now I do know a few of the phrases, like thank you is tinky tinky. Um, that's really about it. <laughs> I'm still working on it. There's not many people that speak it, but I will tell you now though, even though the language isn't spoken, um, the accent here is very, very different. It's kind of uh, similar to the accent of folks from Barbados. Um, it's kind of like, it has like a, a island or Caribbean type dialect, I guess to it okay so sorry i was over here googling um how are you related <laughs> to emily maggot oh, emily maggot yeah mp which stands for military police i never asked her what why they called her that but i can only imagine um but we call her mp and um she is really we're not biologically related she's she married someone okay. from the maggot family and so that she became a maggot her her maiden name is hutchinson and her family actually has a, i mean like super deep, historical and deep ties um to this island uh her great i want to say her great grandfather or might be her grandfather he actually built the hutchinson house you can google that really quick too you'll see it um it's called the hutchinson house it was like the first like house <laughs> that wasn't like a four room shack or a four four walled shack um, that was owned by a black person on the island. He actually had his own, he grew his own cotton. He had his own cotton gin. Um, and so he was really, really um, just a big deal on the island as far as like as act, as an activist and speaking up for, for black folk here. And sorry for anyone who's not Googling this. Uh, <laughs> Emily is apparently a very well-known cookbook writer um yes. it's like the first um, thing that came up when i googled gullah Geechee. that she's a cook 
Or her book. Yeah. Her, yes. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So she's really known for uh, just cooking and feeding people. Uh, she even now at 90, she's doing less. But last year at 89, uh, she was still going around giving out meals and cooking for like the sick and the shut in. It's something she really prided her. She really prides herself in. Uh, she's done it for many, many years. And and so, yeah, I I guess I got I guess I don't want to say bit by the bug because it's kind of in the in the family, even though we're not biologically related. There's still some similarities there in a sense that like I also want to do the same thing. Um, cook and feed people, <laughs> whatever that looks like. Well, so that brings us into the next question. And looking at the picture of her, she looks like she probably has a similar personality to what my Nana had. Um, you know, you feed anybody who gets close enough. And I wouldn't have been surprised if my Nana had had a, a nickname like Military Police either. So, uh, you know, stay on their good side. It's safer over there. It's <laughs> and you get fed. And you get fed. Yeah, you don't. nothing good happens once you get on their bad side. Um, so how do you, how does growing and cooking connect you with your, with your history and your community? Oh, wow. Um, so before I moved here, I didn't even think twice of, like, I had no idea that I would even immerse myself in the ways that I have since I've been here in cooking and, and wanting to share that with everybody. So just a quick backstory. I, was in a culinary arts magnet program in high school. Like since I could remember, and since the easy bake oven, I had one every year that I wanted one. Um, I cooked and I really enjoyed it. And so I thought I was going to be a pastry chef one day. I got accepted to Johnson and Wales and I was going to go on my way to become a pastry chef. And I wound up switching last minute and staying in state and studying marine biology instead. And so Another reason why I'm just super grateful, like my granddad sent me here because I was able to kind of like reconnect with who I was and what I really wanted to do. And um, yeah, I I guess that's the connection to my ancestors. Like he, I just became reconnected to my own passion um, around cooking and growing food. Um, but I think what I'm, I'm most... Um, I think what most connects me to is just the fact that like I'm able to grow the food that they they grew here, you know, and learn how to prepare Gullah Geechee meals cuz like I knew I knew how to cook, you know, really well, but I had no idea about like Gullah Geechee cuisine, you know. Um so coming here, I've been able to to learn and actually MP, I've been in her kitchen many times where she's I just call her like, "Hey, can you teach me how to make red rice?" And she was like, yeah, come on. And I would buy the ingredients and go to her house. And she taught me how to make red rice, you know, or okra stew. These are things that I never knew. I never knew existed, really. Um, and then I came here and was able to to learn how to, to make those from one of my elders. Um, and so I think I'm most just I'm just really grateful and excited that I had an opportunity to reconnect with my heritage through food because I already loved cooking. <laughs> and so it just made sense. Um, so yeah, uh, no, I was seeing here, like, uh, when it comes to like my community here, I'm still building that and figuring that out since, and also because I'm, I'm not on the Island full time anymore. Um, that's kind of still like a work in progress. Uh, like who, who, where am I cooking and who am I feeding? (laughs) I just know I want to do it, but not sure how that's going to pan out. My background is in culinary as well, actually. And it is, it's such a 
a mental shift to go from cooking for strangers for money to mm -hmm. cooking for your own people. And especially when it's something you've raised, it is such a very different experience. Um, yeah, I think that's my favorite thing is that I call my, I consider myself like a culinarian, but also an agrarian. You know, like I mm -hmm. am very, um, in my, I do love to cook, but I, I guess I do pay attention to what I'm growing because a lot of the things that I choose are things that I, my ancestors would have grown here. Um, as far as like some of the veggies that I choose to grow, um, you know, obviously I still do try different things too. But I, I, I am very, I connect myself in that way. Like I'm going to, and I don't even like okra all that much. I am learning to like it. <laughs> I'm like making myself like it. Since I was a child, I never really cared for it. And I didn't grow up here. So it wasn't part of my diet. Mm -hmm. um, but now that I'm here, I'm like trying different varieties and connecting with my ancestors in that way, because I just know it was such, it was a staple food and they still enjoy it to this day. So um but it, it's really great when I can grow my own things. I go out there and, you know, just like how one of my foremothers or forefathers would have done and pick the food, you know, and then bring it in the house and cook it up for their family. Um, it just makes me feel warm and, and loved. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it seems like, too, okra is one of those foods that is a real particular thing. Yeah. Um, and it seems like it's kind of like Brussels sprouts or fish that cooked well, it's really good. Um but cooked badly, it's really, really bad. Um, you know. So yeah, okra. It's not. I mean, in <laughs> Iowa, it's not something we eat. You know. Yeah. But yeah, yeah. I've had both good and bad okra before, so that's my. I'm still on working that. on it. I have a few things like I made um some okra fritters. It was like okra and tomato because mm -hmm. I had to Greece one year and I had these called tomato keftidis and they were the best things I've ever tasted in my life. And I said, I wonder if I could put okra in there and see how that works out. And it was so good. And so like just finding new ways to, you know, again, like holding on to those ancestral recipes, but also like finding ways to connect with my ancestors through my own um, create creativity, you know, when it comes to cooking food. And so like finding different ways to incorporate these ancestral foods um, in, in, into, you know, meals and things that I know I would like and enjoy. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What are some of your very favorite things to cook? Oh, goodness. So much. Um, I think one of my favorite meals, and I know it's like, <laughs> it's always eaten down here, but shrimp and grits. I love shrimp and grits. I can eat it almost every day. Um, it's just something about, it's such a comfort meal. And it's also something that connects me to my ancestors, too. Uh, I really do enjoy making it. I take my time and make it. Um, and it's just it's just so comforting and warm. And it sticks to your ribs, you know? One of those meals where you eat and then you're good until, like, lunchtime. You don't even need a snack at 10 o'clock. Um, I still might snack, but, you know. Yeah, I don't you, need you don't need it, yeah. <laughs> I don't need it, but I'm <laughs> Yeah. Anyway. If there's so yeah, if there's something good out there, you might as well. So yeah, I would say shrimp and grits. It's also um and because I've been mastering my own recipe and kind of like making it my own way with and I do make it in the in the way that they make it in the sense of like they use um it's brown gravy. So I've seen tons of variations of shrimp and grits, but like authentic Gullah Geechee shrimp and grits is with brown gravy. It's not like butter or white wine or and that stuff is good too, but um, I always make it the traditional way. 
Um, and I just like kind of add more veggies to it. Like I use red peppers and green peppers. I'll put garlic. And these are things that are not traditionally in it. But why not? It just enhances everything. And so kind of making it my own. And that's one of my favorite things to make for myself and other people. So when people come visit me, I'm like, I got you on a bowl of shrimp and grits. You have to have it before you leave and you got to have it the right way. So, yeah, I say shrimp and grits. <laughs> I know that there's kind of stereotypes around what Southern food is. Mm-hmm. Um, how do you look at like Southern food, you know, as <laughs> how it's represented versus what actually people eat or yeah um I think one of one of the things I was a huge advocate when I first came down here and I started really watching what my elders were eating and I was like they eat their vegetables and a lot of times especially in just in the black community um we would say things like that's slave food you know And, and I'm just like wait a minute And I would, you know, I didn't agree with it per se, but I would just not ever question it. And when I got down here, I realized like, okay, but slave food, this food was nutrient dense, (laughs) you know, it was tons of veggies. Um, The food was, you know, like it kept our folks alive so we could be here. And so that was one of the stereotypes I had to kind of like condemn amongst my own people, even relatives. I was like, there's no such thing as slave food. Um... I was like, this food helped kept our foremothers and forefathers alive. Um, we wouldn't be here, you know? And so, yeah, I think that was like the biggest stereotype, at least, you know, that I know. And I had to condemn on my own, just in, in my own community. Mm-hmm. So they can look at our food ways as um, nutritious um, and, and not, I don't want to say healthy because like that's, that, that word bothers me, <laughs> but just yes, thank you. <laughs> nutritious. Yeah you know, um, tasty, flavorful, you know, just warm and loving meals. Like, Mm -hmm. yeah. And especially when you're talking about people who are still growing, you know, if you're growing vegetables, the logical next step is to eat them, right? Right. (laughs) So so incorporating, yeah, incorporating that food that you're growing and that seasonal produce and, and making it into things that you want to eat. That's, that's the whole cycle, right? That, that a lot of people have gotten away from is, is not actually growing things and then eating them. That is, you know, that word that you just said seasonal, um, I didn't think about seasonally eating until I moved down here. Mm-hmm. Um, living in the city, I'm just, everything is so accessible. So I just eat what you eat, which is fine too. You have taste hunger. So you eat what makes you happy. Um, but living down here, I've been able, like you said, growing my own food. I'm growing with the season. And so now I'm connecting to the land in a different way too. Um, and it, the connection is getting deeper. And I'm like, I want to eat, I want to grow these vegetables because I have to have them. You know, like I need my collard greens. You know, I need the cabbage. They have to be in the ground. You know, it's like no ifs, ands, or buts because this is the only time I can get it and I have to, I need those nutrients. <laughs> and there's a reason why, you know, we do eat seasonally. And again, like watching my elders next door eat so many vegetables every single day with their meals. Um, I was like, slave food, these people are healthy as hell. <laughs> like I was like, even though my cousin smokes her cigarettes and drinks her Mountain Dew, she is healthy. Like she eats her vegetables every single day in a lot of them. Um, and the country air is just different too. So. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that contributes to it. I think it's interesting too what you said about slave food because it's, you know, I know coming from a a more fine dining restaurant, experience to cooking home food that there's such a 
looking down on, you know, mm-hmm. farm food, you know, that sort of tater tots and jello situation. <laughs> but, you know, looking back at at a cultural history like slavery is such a next level on, you know, what's what counts as good food. Mm-hmm. You know, that's just a whole nother... I mean, it's honestly not something I had never considered because it's not part of mm-hmm. my cultural background. Um, which actually leads in better than I thought to my next question, which was as a pretty basic Midwestern white woman with no food culture outside of Jello, and the area where I live is heavily Norwegian, so they eat mm-hmm. things like lutefisk and lefse and other strange pale foods. <laughs> um, are there ways that outsiders can appreciate other cultures' food ways without appropriating them? Or yeah, I what's... mean, honestly, I mean, MP has a whole book for everybody. She wrote that book for everybody. You know, she and 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 I and I look at it the same way. You know, just just cook the food and also share the stories. You know, if you know the origin or you're making something for, you know, some guests or your family and it's something new, talk about it, you know, um, look at the pictures and, and that's it. That's all I would ask for folks to do. Like try the recipes, try the food and then share the stories. Cause that's what keeps us alive is our stories, you know? Um, and if we can tell our stories through food, I mean, that's a win-win, <laughs> you know, a story in a meal. So that, I mean, I don't think it's any appropriating when you're eating, food you know food is for everybody we all need it but i would just ask that you know if you are making something that's specifically you know like say shrimp and grits for example no one knew the origin of shrimp and grits but there are you know we were the first people the Gullah Geechee that meal was from here from the sea islands um and that started because you know obviously the natives they they gave us corn right they were the ones and consuming that um but slave owners would give rations of grits to uh, their enslaved people and you know that's not enough <laughs> just grits and so they were fish and uh, they would go out and get shrimp and they added shrimp to their grits and that's how we got shrimp and grits it started here and not a lot of people know about that they just know shrimp and grits country you know you can go down there and get shrimp you know if you go to charleston make sure you have shrimp and grits and so i guess just knowing some of the origins of the food ways mm-hmm. um, keeps our stories alive which keeps us alive Yeah, that's a really good point. I was thinking um, like a, this is a kind of a typically Canadian example, but I know that people, a lot of people in the, in our maritime provinces have talked about the fact that, that they, they don't eat lobster because that was what you ate when Mm. (laughs) things were desperate, right? If you, Mm -hmm. if you couldn't, if you couldn't find other sources of protein, then, you know, lobster was kind of the last resort. And yet, I think we need to also acknowledge, you know, like that, that, that those local foods and the, the, the things that are available in, in places, <laughs> you know, that that's, that makes, that also makes sense, you know, like that, I know that there's, then there's emotion and history tied to it, but, but to eat regional foods is, is what makes sense, you know, for, for us as, as people and to, to actually, yeah, to look at our history and recognize where the food came from and why we're eating it. Yeah. And as I said before, like the folks down here, like, they're much older and they're so healthy. And I also noticed too, that um, they don't 
feed a lot of meat here. Um, most of their protein, if it's not like shrimp or like my cousin Nate who goes fishing during the season, you know, he'll go and fish whiting or bass. Um, a lot of their meat is like smoked meat, you know, and I think that's where the whole slave food because it was like pieces of, of meat, right? And I mean, it's a good thing <laughs> because one, it was local and they weren't consuming a lot of it and in the ways that we consume meat now, which is terrible. Um, so yeah, tons of veggies, mm-hmm. not a lot of meat. Yeah. yeah. So am I right in saying that you have recently gone back to school? Yes. Yes. Tell us yeah. what you're doing. I am in, cul- I'm in school for culinary arts. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Oh, yeah, full circle. So one day I was just driving down the road, leaving the Piggly Wiggly, and there was a sign, um, and it said uh, free tuition at Trident Tech. And I was like, wait a minute, what? Free? And so I went online and I noticed that um, the College of, um, sorry, the Culinary Institute of Charleston is through Trident Tech. I was like, get out of here. (laughs) And so I went online like that same day and enrolled (laughs) into the culinary arts program. Um, I'm, and, and what was really wild is that when I grad, like I said, I had a full scholarship to Johnson and Wales. So here we are almost 20 years later and I still get to go to culinary school for free. <laughs> and so it just kind of like, okay, okay, God. <laughs> yeah. I'll, I'll take yeah. that next step. You don't spend a lot of time thinking about this stuff. You're just jumping in with two feet. Yeah. You know, because I've been, again, like I've, since I've got here, I've, I've just remained open, mm-hmm. um, to what led me here in the first place, you know? And so I think that openness allows me to just be aware of things that I wouldn't typically have been aware of. And, and so, and it allows me to um, remain in alignment with my, with my passion, I guess, um, and my purpose perhaps. And so, yeah, I, I take those signs and I'm just like, that, let me keep going and see where it leads me. And if I hit a dead end, you know, I don't, I don't necessarily, you know, like stomp my feet like, oh, I can't get through this wall. I just go around, you know, there's other ways and I figure out <laughs> what's the next best, you know, route. Um, but yeah, I just jumped into it and I, I immediately went online and enrolled and, and got into school. And so far I've taken five classes. So I'm definitely going super part time because I'm a parent <laughs> and I have to work. Um, but it's been such, it, I mean, I am so happy in school. Like it is just like my face just lights up when I'm in the kitchen. Every picture I look at my pictures that I have folks take of me while I'm pretending to be a chef. <laughs> and I'm just looking, I look at my own face and I'm like, wow, like that's joy right there. Do more of that. And so, yeah, it's really, really, I'm just super happy to be back in school and, and back in school doing something that I wanted to do in the first place. Like, mm-hmm. So follow your, follow your heart, kids. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, I was going to, I was going to ask, you know, a lot of adults or people in you know, midlife, they talk themselves out of opportunities like that, you know, going back to school thinking, oh, it's not worth it. You know, like I'll just stick with, stick with what I'm doing. So mm-hmm. yeah. What would you tell someone if, if they're on the fence about whether they should uh, go back to school? I mean, I know it's so cliche, but it's just like, just do it. It really is just do it. If you, I mean, for me, it was, I, it's something that I had always wanted to do. And I had felt in that moment, if I didn't take this opportunity, then that's it. You know, like here it is given back to me. And now I'm in a place where I, there's, there's no outside noise 
kind of like persuaded me to go in other directions. Like when I first decided to not go to school for culinary arts. Um, and I was just so sure I was like, this is for me. And I did it for me. And I believe that, and I didn't even know how I was going to get childcare. <laughs> like my son wasn't in school yet. And I was like, I don't know how this is even going to work out, but it did. It did every single thing. Like I even had like a friend who left Jersey city and needed somewhere to stay. And so she came and stayed with me for like a month and a half when I was literally like going, not like batshit crazy, but I was like wondering like, how am I going to take this summer class when I have Caleb and you know, this, that, and a third. And like in that moment, like a day later, she was like, Hey, I'm ready to transition. Would you mind if me and my kids come and stay with you for a while? I was like, stop playing, <laughs> you know? And she came down here and it was like, perfect. I was able to go to school and she stayed here in my house and my kid was being taken care of, you know? And and so those are just small things that ha has happened to me um, that has supported me that I didn't even ask for. I didn't even plan. You know, it just kind of happened. And every time I think about even those small instances, I just think, OK, I'm on the right path. And I'm so glad I made the decision. So my my advice to folks who are like me, 37 or older, or even just like in their mid, you know, 30s, 40s, just do it. If it's something that's passionate, that you've been passionate about, something that you perhaps maybe gave, gave up a long time ago and you knew in your hearts and mind that it's what you had wanted to do, do it, do it. Because you might not get that chance again. I don't know where my life would have ended up if I didn't do it, uh, you know, or if I would have had the opportunity to, to, um, get back in school and have the support that I needed. It just all worked out. <laughs> it really did. So have faith in yourself, um, trust in whatever, whoever you serve or just the universe, the planet and go for it. Just do it. I know Kia is someone who's gotten a couple of those, you know, shoves from the universe and who's also, you know, I'm 41. I feel like there's such pressure when you're younger that you know, what you do at 18 is what you're going to do forever and you better get it right and don't screw anything up and never second guess anything and, you know, always know what you're doing. And the older I get, the easier it is to just kind of see where I end up and, yeah. you know, to kind yeah. of be less worried about having to be a huge success right off and just kind of going with it and trying new things. And yeah, when you find those things that that light your face up that's what you do you know mm -hmm. and if that's not what makes money then fine you know you find something else that makes money you know right. or you know you're the boss you're the yeah. boss now you know <laughs> like you're not 18 19 anymore it's like you're really the boss you know you and i think about even like my my just i'm at 37 i think about like my life in let's say the last five or ten years and just like i've been in charge <laughs> you know and and so i can I can run with that now and I'm safe and, and yeah, and I got this. And so again, it's, it's taken a long time to get to that point. But when I did, I just was like, there ain't no turning back now, <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. there's no turning back. You know, as we talk about um, repatriation and returning land and um, I've been seeing more about returning artifacts, you know, we see it generally talked about more with indigenous folks um, but I'm wondering how we can support keeping land in the hands of the people who were there historically, whether they were indigenous or like the Gullah Geechee community, or how we can support returning it to descendants of those groups rather than, you know, it seems like it's become sort of the, the cool thing to do to 
have a, a land acknowledgement in yeah. things, but it doesn't do anything. I mean, yeah, it's, it it's better than ignoring it, but it doesn't do anything. Yeah. And an unpopular, I don't, I don't want to say even opinion because I was told this by my elders, but um, when you think about Black people in America, um, we are indigenous to this to this land, too. In the sense that, like, there is nowhere else for us to go. Like, we mm -hmm. don't belong anywhere else other than here. Like, we don't know. You know what I mean? Like, there's no... Yeah, there's Africa, but, like, we don't know where our tribes came from and where, you know, our foremothers, like, the first you know, mother of our family lines live. We don't know. Mm -hmm. So, and then when you get to the Gullah people, like it's even more specific because they were brought here on these islands, which were isolated from the mainland. And this is all they knew were these islands. They learned how to work these lands and, and, you know, um, partnership with some of the natives that were here. Cause the Edisto, um, they, uh, Indians, they actually didn't live here. They just would come here to fish. These were their fishing grounds and they would live elsewhere because you really couldn't live here. Um, even like the plantation owners did not live on these islands. They lived on the mainland and the enslaved peoples lived on the islands where, as well as the, the overseers um, because it's hard to live here. Um, it's wet, <laughs> but we knew how to live here because we were brought from a place that was similar. Um, but I think one thing about like a lot of Gullah Geechee people specifically has lost land through just cruel loopholes, you know, when you have money and lawyers and stuff, you can just do whatever you want. And so a lot of developers have come, a lot of people with money have come here and have been able to take land, um, heirs property. And so a lot of the Gullah Geechee people, the descendants of the enslaved here, were able to obtain land, um, my family included, but a lot of that land has been stolen, essentially, um, through these legal loopholes. And we don't necessarily have the funding, the finances to, to fight back. And so we, we lose it. And then there's instances where families sold land, you know, not really finding value in it. Or perhaps they did, but, you know, times are hard. And it's like I have this piece of land and that money, the green was more, you know, um, was shinier, I guess. And it's like, oh, man, I wish you would have cut that land. But it is what it is. You know, people did what they did and they, you know did what they thought was best for themselves and family. Sometimes it was selfish, but sometimes it wasn't. Um, but I can tell you now that there are a few um, organizations, I don't have them on hand, but quick Google search, I'm sure you'll find it, um, where you can donate to funds where they're helping with like legal costs, legal fees, and helping to um, return land back to Gullah Geechee families, whether it be here on Edisto um, or like St. Helena, uh, uh, Buford, you know, as you keep going, because these sea islands stretch from Jacksonville, North Carolina, all the way down to Jacksonville, Florida. There's like 105 islands altogether. Um, all of them are not inhabited, but many of them are. Some of the bigger ones are. And so there are some funds. If you check out like, um, what do you call it? We have uh, the Gullah Geechee uh, Seafood Trail that's starting up. I'll actually send you these links too. I'll send a bunch of resources. Um but these are just ways to kind of like help the community to reestablish themselves mm -hmm. in the way that will help them build um, generational wealth, hopefully for themselves and families. That's really interesting because I think as I'm just going to go ahead and speak for all white Americans, I think we tend to view the descendants of enslaved people the same way that we view ourselves, that they, you know, that they immigrated here. Mm -hmm. Um, but my family coming from Ireland on a ship, you know, that I can trace back for 
a thousand years or whatever mm-hmm. is very, very different than people being kidnapped and enslaved and taken places against their will and, you know, not having this history or, a, you know, a, a path backwards right. through the world. And that's, oh, mm-hmm. that's just and a whole different thing. Mm-hmm. And even here, you know, we were not considered people, you know, we yeah. were property. And so, like, when I've done research um, on my family, even when I was, like, a, in my early 20s, I was doing some research. This is, like, Ancestry.com was, like, super new, so it wasn't mm-hmm. as good as it is now. Like, now I can put my name in, and it's 6,000. This like, my family, we have, like, an actual family tree, and it's, like, 6,000 people on it. Um, and it spans left, right, you know, front, back. It's so many people. Um, but when I first started doing my research, uh, it, it's incredibly difficult. Um, I Now I've been able to identify the plantation that my family was on. Um, and that's honestly a lot of that information for me or that those facts were given to me through like oral history, mm-hmm. not even anything in the books, you know. Um, yeah, because like the first census I think we were, you know, able to do was in 18. 18- 50, I want to say, uh, or maybe even after that, I don't, uh, maybe not, but yeah, so it's really hard to trace back, but I was able to learn the plantation that my family were enslaved on. And a part of what helped me too was, you know, that museum in, in Washington, DC, the African American museum of natural, what is it? Uh, I don't want to say natural history, but the African American museum there in, in DC, uh, they actually, there's a slave cabin there. That slave cabin was on here on Edisto. They they got that cabin from from here, um, and that slave cabin was actually housed by some like my relatives lived in one of those cabins up until 1940, um, and so that's what really and that was a few years ago. And I was like, wait a minute, what? And and that really led me down a rabbit hole to find out more about my family's history. So if it wasn't for that, I wouldn't even have known which like plantation. And that's all I got, you know, because when you do some research here, I've, I've even dug into some of the um, archives here on the island. And we have a, a small museum here and they're trying to do some work on it now. Um, I would say it's too late, but I guess it's never too late. But as long as that museum has been here, there hasn't been quite that much effort into like exploring the history of the enslaved Africans that were on the island. Um so yeah, like a lot of the churches here, some of them have like some historical records of like names. Some of the names I see, like my aunts and uncles, I see those names. I'm like, I wonder, you know, I'll try to piece together and I just make up things, honestly, because I don't have anything to refer to, you know? So if I see like Olivia or James, I'm like, oh, my uncle name is James. I have Aunt Olivia. I wonder if, you know, these names have been passed down and, you know, kept in the family, who knows? So um, these are just some of the questions and things that go on in my mind as I'm doing my own family research. No, I I did our family genealogy a few years ago, and it is, you know, it's something I'm really interested in, but it must be such a frustrating experience to have, to, to lose the tail of that thread so much sooner than, you know, if you mm-hmm. came from Ireland and you can go to a church there and find a, you know, a record and... You know, you can go back a lot further. And, yeah. And being descended from people who were treated like people um, and, you know, had their own rights and their own existence. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I'll tell you one thing, though, knowing that history, um, 
it used to make me sad, right? But now it's more so honoring it now because it's like, at the end, we're still here, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? Like, I, I'm here. I'm here today. I have my own kid, too. I've started my own family. And so I'm, I'm now I'm moving in a way of, like, how can I still share, like, the joy that I feel with those who are no longer here, with my foremothers and forefathers who are not here anymore. Um, and so a lot of the things that I do, even when I'm gardening, in my mind, in my heart, in my spirit, I'm gardening with my family, you know, um, I'm doing the things with them. I'm keeping them in my hearts and my mind as I'm, you know, doing the thing, um, thinking about how they would have done it, <laughs> you know, or what they would have grown. And, and again, just kind of like connecting that way and keeping the, um, think remaining tethered, you know, even though, like you said, that thread, it might've, you know, been cut short. Um, there's still pieces, mm-hmm. you know, and so I'm just picking up the pieces and carrying it on. And so I think for me personally, it's my responsibility. It's my own personal responsibility to um, pick up that, that thread and keep and carry it on, you know, keep weaving it and creating my own stories with it. Um, and then sharing the stories with my son and having him create. And then that's how we just pick up the pieces and just and keep on going. So um, it, it is it. Again, it's it's like uh, disheartening because <laughs> you can't go back. But also, like, what can you do now? And and that's what I ask myself. And and I do. And I just kind of like move in that energy. Mm-hmm. So, how did becoming a mother change your life and change your view of the family history? I know my my understanding, especially of my grandmother's, has changed so much since I had my own kids. And I'm just. You know, we'd love to hear more about how that experience has been. And I also would like to know what you're cooking with your son. Oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> you mean what, what kind of mess are we making in the kitchen? Um, Same thing. <laughs> true, true. Um, I would say, how can I wear this? Becoming a mother. I remember asking God for kids and I was like, God, if you give me a kid, please give me a son. <laughs> And that's exactly what I got. <laughs> and I don't even know why I asked for a son, but I did ask for a son. Uh, but I would say becoming a mother has allowed me, again, like, that's, that's just chem- chemically and just on a molecular level, right, have changed, right? But I would say I am parenting my son um, in the ways that I wish I was parented. My parents had me very young, and so I kind of grew up with them. And I have been just hyper independent most of my life. And so what ch- it changed me in the sense of like, I um, recognize my vulnerability, something I would never have done in the past. Like, I'm not vulnerable. What do you mean? I got this. No, I don't got this. <laughs> and so it's allowed me to, um, to kind of like humble myself a lot. Um, it's easier I'm still working on it, but it's definitely easier to ask for help now. Something that I didn't do. Um, And I actually prided myself in not doing it. And I'm like, that was stupid. Like, of course you need help. Um, So, yeah, it's it's made me become more vulnerable, but also recognize that my vulnerability is my strength. And um, it's allowed me to just see myself, like, in my son and raise him in the ways that I wish not so much even raised. Cause I mean, my parents did the best they could, you know, um, I love them both, uh, but also like just taking away the good things and also, and then changing the not so good things, um, to create a better, 
and healthier uh, life for my son. And so that's the ways mother motherhood has really changed me. It's allowed me to just see myself on a, such a like just deeper level. It's allowed me to see my strengths. Um, yeah, <laughs> I would say that's what it did. I love it. I love being a mother. Um, even though, again, it's a single parenting is hard as parenting is hard as hell anyway. Um, but doing it by myself is absolutely um, challenging. But again, like I, I think about, you know, my, my life growing up and how I was, I mean, I had to be chosen cause right. I'm this, I'm his mama. So it is what it is now. And so, but also like all of those things that have happened to me has allowed me to be as strong as I am to be able to do these things. And I'm just really like adamant on making sure that he has, that I can provide him the healthiest um, upbringing as possible. Uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's such a life changing thing. I mean, everybody says it, right. And you think, <laughs> do you think before, Oh yeah. I mean, like there's so many parents walking around out there. I'm yeah. Yeah. It's fine. <laughs> but, but then what it, what it reveals about you is, mm-hmm. is sometimes mm-hmm. the biggest part of it, right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, therapy helps <laughs> me yeah, quite a lot. Because um, again, like I, I recognize that I don't have it, you know, all the time. I don't have all the answers. And one thing too I've um, been able to do in, in how mothers change, motherhood has changed me is that I'm, I didn't invent parenthood. And I'm, I've accepted that. Like there are other parents out here with wisdom and do I have to listen to every single thing? No, but you know, I'm open to um, just hearing out like other parent parental wisdom, you know, um, and just taking what applies for me and my kid in our situation. So yeah, just being open to receiving. Yeah, that's a good point. Cause sometimes, especially if it comes across as that unsolicited advice it's pretty hard to take but then it's like oh well maybe maybe they could be right yeah especially if there's an elder and I'm like okay they have been a parent much longer than I have and then I think about too like you know just not just black folk but all of us we were not no one's meant to be like parenting by themselves Mm -hmm. you know there's always been like a community just historically we grew up you know, people had other people who all, all types of roles and we all worked together to raise families together. And so um, because it looks different now because of this, I guess, you know, indip- individualism <laughs> that, you know, society kind of like amplifies and pushes on us. And it's like, wait a minute, like I want to live more in community with people. And so that looks like now maybe not living in a village, but um, reaching out to people, village members, let's just say that, you know, community members um, for advice and for help and suggestions and not being, and also taking the unsolicited ones too. Like sometimes it's really our ego in a way um, because it's like this woman <laughs> or this guy, you know, has been parenting way longer than I have. Maybe I should just shut up and listen because something good might come out of this, especially if it's not harmful, you know? Yeah. It's like sometimes we could just shut up and listen. <laughs> Should. Yeah, that's a good point. So what do you love about parenting right now? You know, the, the age he's at, the, the place you are in life, what makes you happy about about being his parent? Oh, I forgot to answer. While, oh, yeah. Uh, the what are you cooking? cooking? Yeah, sorry. Oh, man. Any, oh, well, we, I like I have him help me bake most of the time. So he's not he's not like cooking on the stove. He's on the floor, but he does like a lot of the prep work for me. He has his like um, 
child knives that can slice through things but not slice his fingers. Um, and so, like, usually if I'm making, like, a soup or something, I'll give him, like, the ends of the celery and a cutting board, and he is swearing he is chef. <laughs> and I just go along with it, which is really cool. So those are the ways he helped me because I'm like, okay, we have to make this food. Um, I'm not in a position where, like, a lot of times it's like, let's just make a mess, right? It's like we, I have to be practical because I'm the only parent and I got to do everything. And so I actually need food to be prepared and made, but I do try to incorporate him in those preparations. And so I'll give him like the carrot scraps and I'll just have him sit there. And I'll like sit and talk to him as if we're doing it together. Cause we are doing it together and I'll sit and talk with him and he'll be talking to me and saying things that I don't understand. I'm like, Oh yeah. You know, I just go with the flow. And, and so he'll do that. Or if we're baking, we do like to make banana bread. Once the bananas get really nasty, He's ready, ma, the bananas are ready. And so he knows, like, I like to wait until they're really, really blackened um, before we use them. And then I'll have them, like, smush up the bananas, um, you know, and just kind of incorporate them. And then what I notice is that, because he has a little play kitchen, and he's always at his play kitchen feeding me. <laughs> so a lot of times it's him, like, in the kitchen or sometimes in his play kitchen, and I'm with him in his play kitchen making play food. And just having a good old restaurant in, yeah. in his bedroom. You get so. to you get to be his sous chef in that. Uh, exactly, exactly. <laughs> in his taste tester. In his zone, yeah. <laughs> this imaginary food is perfect. <laughs> so yeah, definitely, he's in the kitchen with me. Not again all the time, um, because like I said, I'm uh, and I, I hope for this one day that I can just wusa right, and I don't have to be. And it's coming soon too. Um, but because of just like having to do everything, I'm like, okay, food just needs to really be made. <laughs> and so again, I try to pull them in in the ways that I can. But a lot of times I'm very strategic um, when it comes to cooking and preparing our food. That's fair. We don't always have time to have a little sous chef along for, yeah. the, for, for the prep of everything. Right. I feel like that's something we miss in a lot of the Instagram reels too, is, you know, there's all this, these reels of parents and kids cooking together or baking together but it never shows what they actually end up having for supper or <laughs> who stays up all night cleaning up the mess cleaning up the mess right yeah <laughs> my baby's got up this morning and they're four and just turned six and they apparently want to make gingerbread men tonight oh. on a school night <laughs> and yep. they're not gonna eat them you know there's no way and there's yeah. so many steps. And there's so many steps. <laughs> you have to you make the I dough do. and chill the dough and then roll it out. Uh -huh. They you just, do they just want to decorate it. You, and <laughs> I do. This is what I do with Caleb. Um, if I know there's going to be like something like that, uh, I just have him help me with like a, we'll do it in like batches, you know, like it'll might be a three day thing <laughs> and we'll pick it up tomorrow. So let's put all the dry ingredients in this bowl and then we'll cover the bowl. And then we'll come back to it another day and, you know, maybe do the wedding greens and put everything together. And then perhaps I'm not even putting it in the oven that day. Like it's going into the refrigerator, but at least it's all put together and then we'll bake it the following morning or something like that. So I try to like, you know, split it up if it's something that's a lot of steps. You know, now I'm wondering if I could get him to help me make cookie dough for some sort of cookies tonight. And then they'll come home from school tomorrow and it'll just be baked cookies to decorate. They wouldn't even have to be the same kind of cookies. I mean, they, right. they really don't care. If no, there's cookies just, and they get to make a mess, they're going to be happy. Right. You know? <laughs> they just want to make cookies. Yeah, yeah. that's what, that's what they're after. Cookies, whatever cookies they are, there are at the end. Like, yep. Yeah, children. Yep. 
<laughs> oh, so I'm going to get back to my, uh, what are you loving about parenting right now? Besides cooking together. Oh, yeah. Um, I think right now, because he's four, it's like, you know, they're always changing. And But what I am enjoying right now is our conversations. <laughs> they're, they're just much more, I don't want to say interesting, but I can understand him better now. Mm-hmm. Um, and he just has so much to report back from school now. And so I think that's like, yeah. That's what that I'm really that's what I'm really enjoying right now. And I'm also enjoying his his like independence too. He recently asked me to sleep in his own room. I didn't ask like he just was like, Mom, I'm a big kid now. I wanna I said, Are you sure? And he's like, Yeah, I have big kid. And of course I have like a dozen lights. He has like Christmas lights strung up. He has like two light uh night lights that go off when the light goes off. He has like a diffuser light. <laughs> but I'm like, whatever makes you happy and keeps you in your room. Um and he slept in there for about a week on his own. He just got back in my bed last night uh, for whatever reason. I didn't deny him. But he asked me to sleep in his own room. So that's what I think I'm enjoying right now um, is that he's growing up a little bit, but not not too fast, but just a little bit. And I, and I really enjoy that because, again, like as a single mom, single parent, it's just been us. And so just to have a whole week with the bed to myself, it was amazing <laughs> to not, not have a foot in. Full star, full starfish, <laughs> right? Here, like, right. Exactly. Using every inch of the bed. I mean, every inch of the bed is yeah. just, yeah, yeah. I could blame the blanket being on the floor on him. It was me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it was all me. Is there anything in particular that you, um, that you feel when you're with him on a disto? Is there, you know, like that, like be having watching him be part of that community and and be part of that place? Yeah, um, I really, and it's, it really bites now because I, again, I just relocated to um, Somerville. Sure, yeah. And it's about an hour or so away from Edisto, but I needed to be closer to some resources. I mean, be, I really wanted to stay here in Edisto and I actually tried to buy a home here uh, four times and it didn't work out. And the first house that I chose in that town of Somerville was the house. And I was like, wow, okay, I'm listening. And I did, I needed more. I just needed to be closer to some resources and I wanted to get him involved in some things too and not have to drive an hour, you know, one way to, to do that. Yeah, that um, makes sense. But while he was here and I still love that we still had this connection, um, we stayed on the beach. And so like even the parking attendant when we would come in, like he <laughs> knew us by first name um, and they would always give him a oh guy. He got everything, all types of snacks and toys just for being a kid. Um, the guy who like mows the lawn for my next door neighbor, Miss Dorothy, like before he would start mowing, he came once every two weeks and on cue when he, before he started mowing the lawn, he would come ring the bell and give Caleb his snack bag. <laughs> so he had all his, you know, fun time snacks. Uh, and then like next door, my cousin Nate, uh, would also, I would, you know, cause again, it's just me and him and I would want him around just some male energy too um because i was like i can't teach you how to be a boy i'm not a boy um and so i would you know leave him with nate and he would like do all types of building work and caleb had his little um tool belt (laughs) with his fake tools and stuff and so he would like spend time with them so um yeah that was one way i integrated you know him into the community just because again like a lot of the folks here are older and much much older but they, they, he need that elder energy too. And so I would, you know, make sure he stayed for some time next door with Martha and just kind of get some of that old people love. 
um, yeah. But now that we're in a new town, I'm really excited about just kind of, it's a family town too. So tons of children, um, like under the age of five, like 25% of the population there. And so I'm really excited just to be more involved in the community. Um, just because I come from, you know, a, a city where I was always involved in something, always volunteering for something. And here on Edisto, I've been quite limited. And so looking forward to doing that and then getting him involved too. So I'm sure that your four-year-old is a perfect angel at all times, but <laughs> what's your biggest parenting struggle right now? Hmm. Oh my gosh. Right now is bath time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It just got real all of a sudden. I was like, what do you mean you don't want? I don't want to. Like every night for the past, I want to say like month, it's been just, not every night because we don't, he doesn't have to wash up every night. But the times we have to take baths, I'm just like, all right, you know what? Just get to the sink and let me wipe you down. But it's bath time and bedtime has been particularly challenging these days. Um, but I would say over, outside of that, because it's to be expected, they're kids. Um, I am really looking forward to having a partner i i'm looking forward to expanding my family too and so i would say the biggest parenting struggle is parenting by myself um yeah it is not okay um and it's not practical either and it's not sustain sorry not practical it's not sustainable and i know that and so um, not, I'm not out here just like, hey, you know, do you want to be his dad? No, but <laughs> I am looking forward to that day that I do find a partner for me um, that will, you know, just take Caleb as his own. And, you know, still going to be challenging, I'm sure, <laughs> parenting, but it won't feel as so much of a struggle that every single thing, you know, that's relied upon is on, on my shoulders, you know, from finances to just everything, every single thing. Um, that's the biggest struggle. Yeah. I can imagine that that would feel like a lot of pressure, right? That the, yeah, the buck stops with you, which some days is probably great <laughs> because mm -hmm. you get to be in control, but yeah, that also means that, yeah, it's all on your shoulders. I'm sure that feels heavy. Yeah. I don't want to be in control all the time. Like someone else take the reins. Yeah, yeah. Could you just steer the ship for a little while? I'll take back just over for a later. Little while. Yeah. Which is why I'm again I'm excited because I'm again and I think that's why I had to nothing none of the homes felt um worked out for me on Edisto because it's meant for me to move into a more um just a community that has more people, more young people, um, and just more activities and, and even just parks. Mm -hmm. There's not one park on this outside of Edisto Beach State Park, which is just the beach, and they just built a little playground area for the kids, but it also costs money to go to that park. So like not a lot of people are there, you know, like unless you're 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 a tourist. Like I have a, 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 a annual pass that I can use to get in and out of that park. But um a lot of the children here are not as privileged, you know, and, and so I have to take him so far. And so now, like, you know, being in, in Somerville, I can take him to parks and he can meet other children. And even though, yeah, they're not in my house helping me, they, these other parents and their children are helping me, <laughs> you know, um, while we're out there. Well, yeah, it seems to be a, a pretty typical rural small town problem. But if you live in a place with a lot of older folks and a lot of relatives, um, it really narrows down your your partner finding possibilities. Right. Yeah. So. 
(laughs) Probably a better chance where you're not related to everybody. Right. I was just about to say that, like, if you're from Edisto or your family's from here, yeah. And again, it's not a lot of young folks here. Um, And a lot of them are already in, they have their own families. Um, Yeah. (laughs) Yep. We joke that my husband had to import me because same problem here. He's related to everyone. Everyone. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So what are some of the uh, goals that you have um, on a professional basis or what are some of the, the dreams that you have going going forward? Yeah. So um, I had founded a nonprofit while I was in, still in Jersey City uh, called Earth Child Inc. And um, it was an... I had established it because I noticed that when I, I did a few, like just went hiking a few times, right. For the first time and camping. And I was like, this stuff is like therapeutic nature. <laughs> and by the way, I mean, I've, I've been outside. Like my grandmother was a science teacher. We, she kept me outdoors. Like I grew up outside. I'm you know, older millennial. So like outside was where you went. Um, Cause if you were in the house, that was like, nothing was really going on there. So you went outside. And so, but as I got older, I connected to nature in a little different way. And I realized like just how extremely therapeutic and just healing and restorative it was. And being from, you know, the inner city and then going out into these like spaces, I just felt so free and just so calm and just at ease and protected and safe. And I was like, I bet other like kids who look like me would love to do something like this or could benefit from it. So I founded Earth Child. With, um, in an effort to to get kids who look like me outdoors and doing untraditional like activities, outdoor activities. So I would take kids kayaking and camping and uh, backpacking, all different types of outdoor, like untraditional sports that we would do. Um, and so since I've been here, um, it's still active. I've, I've kept it active as a 501, but I haven't really done too much. I was trying to partner with the school here that my son goes to on the island. There is one school here on the island. Um, I think there's 50 kids or 54 kids in the whole school. So it's pretty small. Um, but I, they have a garden there. And so I started doing some garden work back there and I had fundraise and used a lot of that funding to just buy materials and seeds and stuff. And I was planting back there. Um, but I have been struggling, but it's like, what am I doing with earth child here? Um, and so I, I just can't, I just, I have an idea now. The details are a little funky, so I don't have many details. But I am just uh, leaning into that nonprofit that I founded um, and figuring out what I want to do next. Now that I will be in Somerville, um, like, what do I want to do? What, I'm sure it's going to look different where I'm not going to perhaps be taking kids camping or hiking or anything like that. But it still will revolve around like a land connection and likely through growing food and, and cooking food. So, um, yeah, it's still like uh, up in the air, I'd say. But I'm definitely um, just looking forward to moving uh, in that space, that nonprofit I founded and, and really getting that active again and um, allow because I didn't create it. It, it didn't happen, you know, by coincidence. And, and so I'm just, you know, again, figuring out, like, what does that look like? How does it look like here in, in the low country? Um, and I do have an idea and, and I feel really good about it. Uh, I'll be working uh, very soon with a local nursery. Um, and so I'm just really excited to work outdoors again um, and just kind of like still, le- again, learn and get really good at growing food in the low country because I'm only 
one and a half seasons in, <laughs> although I have been growing for quite some time in Jersey, it's just so different here. Uh, the weather, you know, and the bugs, everything is just really, really different. Um, but I'm just looking forward to just growing professionally in that realm and then carrying over what fits, you know, um, as far as skills goes uh, to Earth Child. So, yeah, it's kind of like up in the air, but it's still a thing, still hanging around. <laughs> it's still my baby. So we ask all of our guests, Kia, if you were going to dominate a category at the county fair, what would it be? And categories can be real or made up. Oh, my gosh. Um. <laughs> huh. Oh, I would dominate then. The, I don't know if this is a category, but like owl calling, barred owl calling, though, because <laughs> that's the only owl call I know. <laughs> But I can do a really good, like, barred owl calling, and I would just, like, dominate. <laughs> okay, well, since podcasts are uh, an audio format, I think we need an example now. <laughs> I knew this was coming. I thought you were going to say food, and then, I mean, there's nothing we can yeah, do. Yeah, I was, too. I was... <laughs> yeah, I was... No, I... <laughs> barred owl calling was not what I was anticipating. I love it. I myself up here. <laughs> See, I'm not, usually I'm calling owls when I hear them and I'm like, oh, there's a barred owl. Let me go outside and talk to it. (laughs) I'll pretend you two are barred owls. Yes. Yeah, I definitely am. I'm turning my head all the way around. (laughs) That's real freaky, Arlene. I'm just going to open the window and see if you can call our neighborhood owls in. (laughs) Turn the volume up. If I end up with owls all over my porch, we'll know why. (laughs) It was me. Here we go. And that was the nervous call. That um, that I is def- <laughs> definitely award winning. I yeah, you're getting a ribbon for sure. I can't believe I just. <laughs> Does your kid try to call owls yet? No, I do it at night while he's sleeping. <laughs> oh, my, uh, our little boy is obsessed with the owls in the neighborhood. We've seen them at some of the like the local conservation park has smells that are unreleasable. Uh-huh. And so he'll hear the owls outside here and he goes out and tries to call them. And it's pretty, <laughs> it's pretty I cute. laugh every time because I'm just like, if people knew, I was like on my back porch just out here calling owls. But it, it's, I love it. It's fun. Yeah. No, <laughs> I, that was unanticipated. That was awesome. <laughs> That's the best. All right, I'm going to go ahead and move us into our cussing and discussing segment of the show. We've registered for an online platform called SpeakPipe, where listeners can leave their cussing and discussing entries for us, and we will play them on the show. So go to speakpipe.com backslash barnyard language and leave us a voice memo, or you can always send us an email at barnyardlanguage at gmail.com and we'll read it out for you. I wanted to give this a try because I don't know that I've heard anybody else using SpeakPipe yet, so why not be the first? I am so tired of children's clothing. Inside, right side out, inside out. I'm just so tired of it. And socks, can't even stand socks anymore. Matching, not matching, on my floor, on my kitchen counters, in play spaces. They never, ever match. I don't ever want to match them. If you have enough time to match children's socks in your lives, I feel like 
I'm probably too judgy and you have too much time in your life if you have time to match children's socks. That's it. So Katie, are you cussing or discussing this week? What have you got for us? I don't know if I'm cussing or discussing because this is the problem. Making decisions. (laughs) I'm so over it. It's adulthood, you know, when you're a kid and you're like, I'm just going to eat ice cream every night and stay up as late as I want and watch TV. And no, it's just decisions. It's it's just decisions all the way down. And it, yeah, I don't want to. And then <laughs> I don't want it. Yeah. And then when you make a decision, then you're second guessing whether it was the right decision. And do we ever make decisions where you make a decision and that's the last decision about the thing you decided on? No. There's no. always like 58 more decisions that come out of the thing, the decision you made. And yeah. It, oh. Or dealing with the consequences of the decision that you did make. Bleh. Yeah. I Yay. Hear that. I don't All right. <laughs> <laughs> Kia, what do you have to cuss and discuss? <laughs> oh, I don't have to choose? No. This can just be anything in the world. Something that bugs you, something you want to talk about. This is just like the the randomness at the end of the episode. (laughs) Oh, man. Cussing. I like cussing. Cussing is fun. Makes me feel good. But I am discussing um, uh, what's coming up. Um, I have a conversation with some some money (laughs) from my nonprofit. So I'm actually discussing that's coming up um a project that i'm working on for earth child to be able to get some funding for what i would like to do so i won't be cussing this week but maybe next week yeah that's good (laughs) i hope that goes well thank you oh arlene what do you have to cuss and discuss so our conversation today reminded me that i'm one of those people who would really in theory like to cook with other people you know i've got children i i know that they need to learn how to cook and that as the primary person who cooks in the house, that it's on me to make sure that they do know how to cook eventually. But I also really just don't enjoy it. Having someone else in the kitchen and like we talked about the making of the messes. And I know that that's part of it. That's, that's an important part of learning how to do something, but I'm just right now, I don't enjoy it. And so lots of times I just don't involve anybody else. And I just enjoy the piece of my kitchen and a podcast and not having anybody else in my space. But I know it's something I need to work on. So that's what I'm thinking about today. Snaps to that. I think I can relate. (laughs) Yeah, I was going to say, Kia, if you were a, a pastry chef, you know, I bet you get this too, that I miss cooking with other people, but in a restaurant, and especially if you're doing pastry or prep work or whatever, you know. There's other people there, maybe, but you have your own space. You have your list of things to do. They have their list of things to do. And those other people know messes. what they're doing. Hopefully. Yeah. And if they yeah. don't know what they're doing, it's not your problem. <laughs> yeah, that's just, yeah. <laughs> I was going to say, I'm actually glad like I waited. Well, not on purpose, but I'm back in school now because like I've realized I don't want to work in a restaurant because I don't want to work in the kitchen with other people. Yeah. <laughs> They're just sometimes they're still in the way. It's just like, uh-uh. Or it's just too too much going on. Yeah. I don't want to cuss. <laughs> Move <laughs> over. <laughs> All right. We want to thank you so much, Kia, for being on the podcast. If people want to find out more about you, drool over your amazing looking food, learn about your nonprofit, where should they find you online? 
Oh yeah, find me on Instagram at Going Back Gulla. Um, and also Earth Child Inc. is all on Instagram as well. You can go ahead and follow that page, but I'm mostly active on um, at Going Back Gulla on Instagram. Thank you so much. It was great to meet you. Thank you too. It was a great time. <laughs> Thank you for joining us on Barnyard Language. If you enjoy the show, we encourage you to support us by becoming a patron. Go to www.patreon.com backslash barnyard language to make a small monthly donation to help cover the costs of making this show. Please rate and review the podcast and follow the show so you never miss an episode. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok as Barnyard Language, and on Twitter, we are Barnyard Pod. If you want to connect with other farming families, you can join our private Barnyard Language Facebook group. We are always in search of guests for the podcast. If you or someone you know would like to chat with us, please get in touch. We are a proud member of the Positively Farming Media Podcast Network.